0: Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Kendra L. Mitchell talks about teaching at a public historically black college and university in Florida, anti-racism, and writing centers. Kendra L. Mitchell, PhD, is Director of Composition and Assistant Professor of English at Florida A&M University, where she has taught composition, literature, and historical linguistics. She serves as a newly elected executive committee member for the National Council for Teachers of English and was also appointed to the NCTE Committee for Change, a social justice-driven committee. Her writing center scholarship can be found in the Writing Center Journal, Praxis Journal, and several book collections. Her current scholarship includes mapping geospatial, social, and multimodal circulation of black identities and culture at HBCUs. Found in her forthcoming co-edited special issue, in the Journal of Multimodal Rhetorics, Transdisciplinarity at HBCU's, Rewriting Black Futures Beyond the Margins, and her forthcoming HBCU Writing Center co-edited collection from University Press of Colorado, Making a Way out of No Way, HBCUs, Writing Centers, and Anti-Racism. She served as a cultural ambassador of South Africa in twenty sixteen as a Fulbright English teaching assistant. She started a nonprofit in twenty twenty, leading literate lives to inspire historically marginalized youth towards global diplomacy through a diverse programs with the goal of international travel. Kendra, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start by talking about your journey to teaching writing and how you became interested in rhetoric and composition. What did that look like for you?
1: Oh, it looked like a great labyrinth of decisions. Um, (laughs) It's actually funny, I think about this process a lot. And there are moments where I'm in the classroom like, wow, I never thought I would be here. I started off as I actually taught or or, or attended school at FAMU, Florida A&M University, the HBCU in Tallahassee, where I now work. So I'm working in the department that I actually was enrolled in. So this is a full circle conversation. But how it started was that I um, had a friend in high school who knew she wanted to go to FAMU, and I thought I wanted to go to another HBCU, uh, Morgan State, because my friend was going to Howard, you know? And it was just like, yeah, we can go to New York every day. Um, That was my vision of school at that time. And so I'm very happy that this new friend, or this other friend, interrupted (laughs) that train of thought. and She said, I need to know my roommate. Why don't you apply to FAMU? And so in applying to FAMU, of course, I had to think about, well, what would my major be? And so I had been in the Business Professionals of America Club in high school, and I won a couple of awards, and I think it was just accidental. Like, I don't know how I knew I could do these things, but I just did it. So FAMU was known, known like worldwide for their business program. So I started off in business administration because, hey, you know, I won an award that must mean that's what I'm supposed to do gotta be the path, right? Um, and uh, so I got admitted to their four-year program and came to FAMU, had my roommate, you know, life was looking good uh, until it wasn't. And <laughs> I had no real like plan for how, uh, what, or why I was doing what I was doing. And I started to get a little curious about writing and developing my writing. And so I had friends who Um, I sang with, I was in a gospel choir, so I sang with them and they would tell me about these cool writing classes that they took and how they learned these other skills that I was like dying to learn. Like, I was like, how do you know how to write like that? How do you know? (laughs) And I was writing more creatively and I wanted to be this awesome writer. So I just would sit on a stoop and ask them questions about their classes. And they were like, well, maybe you should just like take a class. And I was like, well, well. So it took me a long time and it it, it took the bottom falling out for me. I ran into some financial hardships as an out-of-state student without a scholarship, without any financial plan so i had to really be serious about the classes that i would be taking so it kind of i call it phase 1 and phase 2 of my undergraduate career so the phase 1 was like the automatic enrollment of school that most students kind of you know just kind of get farmed into like well the next thing you do is you graduate from high school then you go to college that's what any good student is taught to do and especially in 98 that's what we were told was the the pathway to success And especially um, being um, a a daughter of a single parent home, you know, striving for middle class status. I didn't know any of that at that time, but that's what the models were for me. And so that meant college. And I didn't know really, I didn't have time to think through it. My mom hadn't been um, a college graduate. My dad was not a college graduate. I was the first one of my parents to even go away to school. So this was all very new and I had to learn very quickly what did it mean to kind of find your own path? And a lot of this ties into my teaching philosophy and my approach. But I, I, I journeyed through that, had so many hardships financially to the point where I had to market myself. I had to storm down you know, um, financial aid. I had to go and find scholarships and, and sponsors. I ended up getting a sponsorship, a major sponsorship that wiped out (laughs) my undergraduate debt and allowed me to be an in-state student. And that changed the game for me. And so in that period of time, while I was working through that and working odd jobs and trying to keep up with classes, I would audit classes. I would just, you know, be studious. I was um, intentional about my learning in a way that I was not when I graduated from high school because I didn't really have that model. I had aunts and uncles who went away to college, but I never got to see it up closely. But this journey ended up looking like, well, okay, while you're you're working at Chick-fil-A mopping floors, and while you're, you know, a, a, a cashier here and you know, bank teller there, what is it that you really want to do? do you really, are Are you doing this because you want to go back to being a business administration student or is there something else? And I remember those conversations on the stoop, right? With, with my friend, I was like, well, I was very interested in English and I wanted to write. And I knew that my writing was not um, at the standard that I was reading, right? You know, I would read these books and I'm like, I'm very interested in getting this kind of fluidity, right? You know, this writing fluidity. I wanted my thoughts to be that, crystal clear on the page. And I, I knew I had a journey and I figured majoring in English would be the way. And so I changed my major and it it really did open some doors for me that I did not anticipate. And so I got the funding, like I said, got back in school and this was what I call phase two. And I had this zero tolerance for distractions. I came in, I was 24 years old and I knocked it out. I thought I had more time Um, that I had to, uh, invest in schooling, but I only, it only took two years after that. And I ended up getting like the best grades I ever had in my life. Like, okay, you're, I started off on the Dean's list and all that. That was cute. I had never seen straight A Kendra. Okay. I I met her. She got it done. It didn't matter what it was. She was an honor student. Like I didn't even work that hard in high school. So, so all of that to say, all, um that hardship and those um, real life experiences made me come face to face with what I um, eventually decided to follow, the path I decided to follow. That's how I became an English major. Um, really quickly, how I became uh, invested in retcom, right? So that was only phase one. What do you do after it? So my, my professors were like, oh yeah, you need to go to graduate school. And I was like, well, I think bachelor's, like I earned my bachelor's, this was hard. Like, I think this was great. But I ended up being um, selected by one of my professors to work in the writing center. So all of this began with tutoring. I didn't know that I was really good at it because I was so insecure, right? I came in, well, I, I need to fix myself, right? But because I had bought books, I had been studying on my own and working independently of any assignment or any lesson. I taught myself more than I had known and my professor saw it. So she saw the potential, called me out. She would read my paper in front of the class. I was like, where's my paper? And then she would be reading it like, this is an example of what we should be writing. I'm like, oh my gosh. So all that to say, she pulled me in right when I became an English major. And so I had about a couple of years to build and watch and, and study. Um, she took me to my first professional conference, um, uh, an SWCA conference. And that's where I ended up seeing how big it was. And, I, you know, it's like, oh, this is a national thing. Like people actually do this. And I, I just was hooked. You know, so those things that I longed for before I was even, even an English major was being satisfied in the writing center. And so I had become so good at it that they created a position for me when I graduated. So <laughs> and then I became a professional, right? So I became a practitioner and I went to a conference for my boss and it happened to be a WPA retreat, our intensive, um, what is it called? The three-day intensive. And I met some other ret comp folk who pretty much convinced me that, I needed to to go ahead and get my application into Florida State. They were like, I don't know what you're doing, but you're doing everything that's retcon. Everything you're doing is already in this field. And I have been trying to go and do literature because I thought that was the way to go, you know, English literature. So that's how I ended up in this field.
0: You're teaching at the university you went to school to as an undergraduate. What's it like teaching at Florida A&M University a public HBCU in Tallahassee, Florida. And can you talk about your approach to teaching writing and how your experiences as an undergraduate in that context has influenced your approach to teaching?
1: I would like to start with your second question first. And I think it'll probably encompass the first one. I wear my story on my sleeve and I, I lead my classes with this. You know, a part of my introduction is to give them a background that I am one of them. I was in your shoes, right? I said, even though we're in a different time, a different era, I I have maybe more shared experience than you think. When you see me as Dr. K, that's why I tell them to call me, um, Dr. K, you see someone who seems to have it together because that's the snapshot, right? That's a quick picture. But I let them know, I understand and I empathize, right? I empathize. I know what those challenges are, how to ne- difficult to negotiate even some of the different approaches and and teaching styles. So I I empathize and I can relate on a very personal level so that they don't feel like they're alone. Because that was one of the things that I recognize. It's so easy to feel like you're alone, especially if you're first gen, And, um, you know, especially if you're a black or brown person, there is this imposter syndrome. You're not supposed to be here anyway. And, you know, even if you're at an institution where everybody, you know, at least not looks like you, but you can find more people that look like you than not in that place, it can kind of give you a sense if everybody seems to get it and you don't, you still feel like Maybe there's something I, I'm doing wrong, or maybe I'm wasting everybody's time. You may not utter it out loud, but it's it's something there. So I my experiences allows me to catch it afar off. I can see the I know what the behavior looks like. before it's even uttered, before when you're missing, I know that what it's like to have to work thirty hours, you know, because you are not only supporting yourself, right? You know, or you don't have someone to call. <laughs> to 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 bail you out, you know it's like, oh, I'm a struggling student, and you will struggle. <laughs> you'll continue to struggle, some of them are are take- are caregivers, you know, I'm currently a caregiver, I take care of my mother, I tell them these stories i I share my vulnerabilities more readily because of my experiences here, and I think that is even different, you know across the board. I won't say that everyone who has walked that path chooses that that approach. But for me, I found it to be more effective, right, Um, to build those relationships that I think are paramount for students to tell you the truth (laughs) so that we can get to the nitty-gritty of what is impacting your writing and what are the barriers. Because I may think I know what the barrier is, but when you tell me, you know, when you feel like you can trust me because I've experienced maybe not your particular plight, but I've experienced something like it, right? So then that, that informs how I design assignments, we're We're not you know, I know that there are I have colleagues who believe that writing is just writing, we definitely have administrators you know who feel like if you write one way here, it should be you know uniform, right that current traditionalist model right, but you know it's conflicted with the process because they want want to see a process right you know, and that's not unique to our field, but that you know add on you know, the uh, systemic oppression that comes with the educational system and black and brown bodies, especially when it's gender, when you have nonverbal communication that can be often or is readily perceived as dubious, right? Or um, harmful to the classroom environment, you know? And so I I, um, feel like I, at the same time, so those are kind of like, some of the barriers, but some of the the agentic moments, right? Which is what like my research and everything is about um, looking at how we make a dollar out of 15 cents. How do we take these hardships, right? You know, how do the students do this? How do they overcome? How do they persevere? How resilient, uh, how does resilience look among these groups of students who are up against so much? And I, so I create assignments that swing to their strengths it's like okay, you wanna talk about something that matters to you, you know, Dr. K is not your hip hop scholar, so I am not I barely know the names of uh, any music artist, so I dare not even venture i have I have colleagues who are amazing at that, you know, but my students relate to it a lot, but i what I do instead is i um uh, for my development of writing for instance i I start off the class with social media like a comparison to social media writing and um, classroom writing or academic writing. I was like, okay, well, how do you show up on social media? What are the things that you value? How do you, you know, and then let's, you know, let's do a rhetorical analysis. They don't know that. We're doing a visual analysis. They don't know that, but we're looking at these images or we're finding images that maybe reflect that, right? So I'm sure I'm using what they have, and I'm I'm helping them connect it with this community that d- was not necessarily created for them, but we make room for them, right? Um, so showing them how to make room and take up space in the ways that make sense to them so that they it makes it easier for them to connect and be flexible in the other areas that are are probably a little more distant from them. Um I also, like my first year comp, what we tend to do is we do problem-based or even project-based. So it depends on how I'm feeling. You know, I explore some of these new um, approaches or different approaches. They're not new, but they're new to me. <laughs> so, um, and most of my students. And so we will either take a problem and um, we'll look at a problem in their community that they observe, a problem on campus that they observed. And let's write about it from a personal, you know, so they do a, a narrative approach, right? You know, because we we focus on the, the modes. So this is me transition to that other question. We write our first year comp, um, we write about the modes, right? So we get them to write that. And um they they usually start off with some kind of narrative writing. And then they'll either do, depending on the professor, they'll do something like process or compare and contrast or something like that. Um, and then they'll do another mode, maybe descriptive or something. And then um, the last of that first, uh, like 1101, they'll close off with a research paper. So that's what I do. I take them um, for for the problem-based. I really have liked what they've done because I get them to think about the world outside of their media experiences. So a lot of them talk about the, you know, maybe the violence or, you know, they, they, that comes up a lot, you know, they're recognizing what's going on in the world around them. And I'm trying to help them at least initiate these conversations and be, you know, initiate being change agents, right. You know, that's something, you know, pivotal for HBCUs. That's always what uh, any HBCU is founded upon, you know, taking our, our students and preparing them to be change agents in the world
0: around them. Kendra, let's talk about your research. You're working on a co-edited collection titled Making a Way Out of No Way, HBCU's writing centers and anti-racism that aims to decenter whiteness within writing centers and writing center studies. Do you mind talking more about this collection and its vision and aims? And maybe this idea of being Change agents, something you mentioned as folded into HBCUs. How do you hope to inspire administrators, writing centers, and teachers through this collection?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, shout out to wonderful Faison. Um, she is a phenomenal um, co-editor and has already published a book um with Frankie Condon recently on counter- um counter stories in the the writing centers right and so she kind of she reached out to me. And asked me, you know, if I wanted to contribute. And then I was like, hey, this is actually right up my alley, you know, what my dissertation is attempting to do. I just hadn't had a chance to get back to it. Uh, Yeah, I would love to work with it. She was like, hey, you want to be a co-editor? I was like, absolutely. And what we have been able to do with our call for papers is really just kind of think through, what we mean and what we feel like is missing from our conversations. You know, um, scholars have already talked about how writing centers are rendered uh, gendered, woman, female, and you know, even white female, right? You know, and what that means. And in 2018, Robert Randolph and I did a keynote, a co-keynote at IWCA, talking about decentering whiteness. And shifting that gaze, right? So not trying to fix up or pretty up, right? You know, put put new drapes on what already exists, <laughs> but really consider what would it look like if we actually started over here in the margins and used what they do, you know, in the margins, especially when we talk about resilience, we talk about Um, dealing with anti-racism, well, have you even gotten curious about what happens in these spaces where they've had to resist and be resilient against systemic oppression for hundreds of years, right, you know, um, as an institution. Karma Kennard talks about white supremacy structures in academia and how you know, what she gives us the image in one of her blogs, and I still remember that, you know, the impact. I was like, yes, you know, reading, I'm like, thank you. This is what I mean. Reading it and talking about those um, habits or patterns of white supremacy structure. So it's not like, you know, the white cape, right? You know, walking around because that we get distracted. It's like, oh, white supremacy, this is what we look for. But that becomes the scapegoat. The cape becomes the scapegoat and allows us to overlook the systemic. Processes, right, right, that continue to hold students um, back or hold faculty back, right? Faculty of color, in particular, in this country. And so, what we're interested in doing in this book project is bringing those conversations to the forefront. Just so not just HBCUs can um HBCU writing center professionals can have a space to vent, right? That's not what this is, right? Although you know they can do what they want to do, right? This is their space, but it's not just that, right? It's it's the attempt to shift that gaze, right? To decenter that conversation that has been in existence for as long as we can remember, right, from the foundation. You know, even if you look at the the early start, right, you know, some of the people that we, you know, we always quote Breffy and always, you know, it's like, well, that's fine and good, but we're quoting them because they published, right? Um, Just because these communities have not published at the rate of our white counterpart, you know, it does not mean that we do not have effective systems in place. Right, And so, and um, I, it makes me think about that same 2018 uh, IWCA, I, my, some of us in the writing center profession of Black writing center professionals, we heard um, an award was given to a scholar, a white scholar who had done some work on an HBCU. And in her presentation, she had rendered something unintelligible. And we all looked at each other and we said, well, interesting, because we all understand it perfectly. Do you understand? So it's like even if you you see it first, it does not mean that you should be the one to speak on it. Right. Um, It does not mean that you have access just because you have rhetorical tools. It does not mean you have the appropriate ones right? You know, the culturally situated tools to decode what you are observing or what you think you're observing. So it's important to, inc- um, this book is intended to bring those moments or those situations to light, as well as to encourage and to foster more cross-institutional partnerships. We, I, I, I put a charge out and I said, hey, you know, um, PWI, Writing Center Directors, Do you know your neighboring HBCU? Do you know who's directing that space? Do you know what their uh, research focus is? Do you know if they have time for research? Do you have a way where you can actually partner with them to alleviate some of the burden? Is there something that can be done, you know, if you know you have access? And I don't mean for you to create a program and then invite them to come, because that happened. (laughs) <laughs> and I had to address it, you know, in a, a polite way but firm. It's like, okay, I think you misunderstood what I meant here. What I meant for you to do was to reach out and actually ask us what we wanted, what we needed, you know, um, what matters to us. I I tried to do a partnership, and the current tutors were suspicious. They were concerned that. Um, because the the people who reached out didn't understand the history, right? The oppression, and a lot of times that can happen. You can be eager to be helpful without doing your homework. (laughs) And so this book um, is only part of the homework, right? We we are sharing um, our scholarship, our research, our insight. We're letting you know that a writing center director at a PWI is not the same. Don't, it doesn't even matter. It's not the same as having to contend with the values and the the systemic oppression that happens that comes burdened with um, directing in a space like this, All right? And we need to get curious about it if we are indeed hoping to um, advocate for anti-racism.
0: Maybe I can pick up on on that here and explore that curiosity a bit. Do you mind sharing what it's like being a writing center director or program administrator at an HBCU? Can you talk more about directing in that space and what that looks like at FAMU? You mentioned your dissertation, which explored multilingualism in an HBCU writing center. And I imagine this is folded into your current research as well.
1: Well, I think um, it has a lot of the similar tenets that most, HBs, uh, most writers and directors have to contend with, right? You have um, competing entities or administrators who are like, we value this, but only in this very surface way. Right it, it, you know we still are surprised when there's an administrator who gets it right? <laughs> It's like, oh wow, you know that this is actually important for the outcome that you have you have you desire right, so we still have all that because we are still in academia, right, none of that has changed, but then what we understand as good writing right and how we assess that becomes um an extra burden in this space because. When you go to a a predominantly white institution, it's almost assumed that "quote unquote" academic writing is one notes, right? And it is "quote unquote" standard English or um, dominant um, English, whatever you want to call it, right? It's it's that thing that gears or centers around um, white ways of knowing and speaking and doing, right? Um, In the U.S., so here we have. All of these students who are coming from this space, we know they're here. We know, and we even use some of this, we share language, we share it. But the expectation is to code switch. And that's the thing where it's the challenge. Like, do you teach the what you know about the damage code switch brings, right? How do you negotiate that you know, for business, right? You know, like how do you negotiate how far you go? There's an extra um responsibility on the, the tutors and the administrators, but I would tell you that they're so creative. In my dissertation, I highlight how my tutors found a workaround, right? Then they would find they would use um African worldviews and African-American worldviews to get to their end. Right, you know, so they were like, hey, you know, while despising and teaching against code switching. So they did, you know, it wasn't necessarily, okay, you need to fix this, you know, because this is a deficiency. Students came in with that sense of deficiency. You know, Nancy, she talks about how students come in, especially students of color, burdened with how wrong they are, right? You know, and I would even argue that students in another class too, right? Right. If they are coming in without the equal exposure and it's, it's, they know they don't have a laptop. Um, I had a student who stopped coming to class because he didn't have a laptop, even though he could have taken notes, but it is, it was so overwhelming to him right, the shame that they carry with that, with not being like the others. And so imagine what it's like to have students who are coming in, they don't get the assignment right away, or they get a mark that they didn't expect, and so much is riding on their success in college. You know, so many people tell them it's make or break, there's no other way, that you gotta keep the family name good. All these pressures for a number of students, it's not just a portion of the students, They don't see, oh, entrepreneurship as another way per se. I'm not saying, you know, times are changing, uh, but, you know, a number of the students that I see. And so I recognize um, that, you know, all writing centers kind of run through and experience, you know, the directors experience these things, but the training, you know, and having to actively consider the damage, you know, constantly the collateral damage that code switching teaching and reinforcing code switching teaches them and so it causes them to think that what they came with has no value so then when they show up in other spaces and it's like oh wow there's value here like with the i read um teresa red's um chapter uh, about her experience our acknowledgement that we read these authors these black authors who use all the language the rich language that we used at home and we celebrate them but the students who are writing their papers would get low marks right elaine richardson talked about it her experience in in a pwi it's like wait i use this very specific culturally relevant experience about this um this book that you know i have this intimate knowledge about these books, and you're telling me it's not appropriate that's the, the challenge that we have to do. So our, our staff, and I'm not the director, but I mentor the director. I train the students and um, I pull in some elements from our dissertation just so they can get a sense of all of the range, where their biases might be, where they have been um, conditioned to hate some parts of themselves. And so then they may also be taking it out and where they might actually have strengths and like, okay, you're a rapper. Okay, you, you play with language all the time. Let's talk about how that works rhetorically and how you can push your students to tap into what they bring to the table. It's, it's, it's a nuanced thing. And it's it's more complicated than maybe, you know, and, oh, I forgot to mention what budget. Like I v- rarely know a writing center director who gets a budget line. I don't know. Him. I don't know. Him. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so anyway, those are some of the um, unique, unique differences that I'm not even able to do justice to it. Hopefully the book will highlight, you know, from these different directors' experiences, what they are negotiating and, and how we could learn as a field from them. Not just say, "Oh, poor, you know, poor things, but what can you draw from them, right? How can you shift what you have as normal and center what they're saying and learn?
0: Thanks, Kendra, and thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.